0: Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, Clearcast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates, and our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello and welcome. I'm Jill Hamilton, editor at Clearance Jobs. Thanks so much for joining us Uh, today. We're going to be chatting with Beau Woods from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. We'll be talking about how Beau came to join CISA and the undertaking he's had this past year, um, especially on the COVID task force. So, Beau, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So how long have you been at CISA? Uh,
1: So I started at CISA in November, um, November 2020. Uh, I'm here on a one-year COVID CARES Act hire authority, um, which is basically a—it's uh, a little bit of a fast track to getting somebody onboarded with CISA, uh, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, Krebs recruited me uh, last year uh, before he left um, as a way to bring more of the the hacker community into CISA. Bring more private sector spirit, private sector knowledge, private sector capabilities in, um, and really help round out uh, some of CISA's uh, capabilities. Um, as mm. as most of your audience probably knows, CISA is the youngest agency in the Federal Zoo. Uh, we were stood up in 2018. Um, and so we're really uh, developing who we are, uh, finding ourselves, trying to get more focused. Uh, and some of our superpowers, some of the things that we do, is to work a lot with private sector, work a lot with critical infrastructure owners and operators, um, as well as uh, the broader ecosystem. We are one of the most technical agencies within the US federal government. Uh, and as such, we engage with the technical communities outside of CISA a lot more frequently than other agencies, other departments will. And so for that reason, uh, it seemed like a natural choice to start going out to those more technical communities to try and recruit some of the talent to bring them in uh, and make them a part of the federal government to improve our ability to um, be agile, flexible, uh, and to really hit what's necessary to keep our government and our critical infrastructure driving forward.
0: Awesome. I love how you, I think, called at the Federal Zoo as the newest agency joining. That's great. Um, so. Talking about that natural choice, what what was it in your back? Like, you, what was your background and kind of how you talked a little bit of how you landed as about but like, what were some of the things that led led up to that decision for you?
1: Yeah, so I've been in uh, information security or cybersecurity for more than 15 years, um, total of about 25 years in technical fields. Uh, and my my first role in InfoSec was actually at a hospital. So I started working mm. in healthcare early on. Um, my primary duties were to protect the desktops, the network, the server, but I found myself actually looking after medical devices as well. So uh, from an early point in my career, I understood healthcare, I understood the trade offs, um, the very complicated nature of the work, uh, and balancing, um, you know, saving lives with cybersecurity and and protecting data um, and how to balance those. Um, after I was at the hospital, I spent a few years doing consulting for, uh, you know, largely financial services, uh, manufacturing, uh, energy sector. So I had a fairly broad base of um, a critical infrastructure coming in. Mm-hmm. And then in 2013, I joined with uh, one of my now colleagues again at, at CISA, uh, Josh Corman, who founded an initiative called I Am The Cavalry. And mm-hmm. I Am The Cavalry was a ground, swell, grassroots, um, global initiative, all volunteer, uh, that started with the realization that our dependence on connected technology has grown much faster than our ability to secure it in areas impacting human life and public safety. So as passionate, technically literate members of the hacker community, we saw that there were looming issues, that there were big, broad issues that our skill set was ideally poised to address in a technical manner, but where we didn't have the uh, some of the other capabilities and skill sets within our community to be able to, to do something about it. So if you look at technical vulnerabilities, technical security issues that could cause harm on a wide scale... While we may know the ways to avert those disasters, we weren't great at getting communication to the executives of companies or uh, far and deep into government where the decision makers are, where they could take actions uh, to allow us to to maintain the safety and security of the lifestyle that we all want to lead. So mm. uh, we started taking that idea and that concept, we brought together... Uh, Dozens and eventually hundreds of people from the hacker community uh, ended up getting really engaged a lot with automotive and with the healthcare sectors, um, including um, working with the FDA quite a bit on some of their guidance uh, and requirements for medical device makers um, to get cleared or or approved to go on sale in the U.S. And so uh, for a little while... I actually took a similar role within the Food and Drug Administration, working on mm. um, a pathway to market for software as a medical device. And if you can, if you can think about uh, the FDA regulations, which were made in the 70s, uh, mm. which did not include much about software, it was mostly physical manufacturing facilities and sterility uh, concerns and um, and manufacturing quality. What does it mean to turn that into something that's entirely software? So it took mental agility. It took a lot of flexibility on the FDA's part to recognize that that was a looming issue and then to start addressing it. So I had a little bit of experience in government coming in, um, but obviously CISA and FDA are, are very different agencies, different organizations, but uh, we work well together as was proven in the the COVID task force.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you've had a heavy, um, I don't want to say heavy, but like a defined interest in the healthcare field. I mean, obviously along with automotive as well. Um, was there anything that drove you to that? And especially with the white hat hacking, um, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that with, um, with your, um, volunteer initiative that you had going, um, was that the whole job you had, or was there more going on in the, like in the meantime with that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, I guess I kind of have a special affinity for healthcare just because it's where I got started. So it's, it's where I learned to make security trade-offs and, you know, as opposed to a lot of other organizations where the primary trade-offs you're looking at are, um, security versus your budget or security versus, uh, your, uh, business lines in healthcare, the business lines, saving lives. So you're Mm -hmm. trading security for saving lives. And they shouldn't be at odds. They should support each other. Uh, but oftentimes the way that we practice them, they end up being in contrast with each other. So uh, as an example, you know, typically with uh, logging into systems, um, in order to protect confidentiality of data, you want to lock an account so no one can log into it if the credentials are entered wrong a certain number of times. It's just a way to keep bad actors out and protect data. Well, what happens if that system is controlling a life-saving insulin pump? Or what if that system is gating access to electronic medical records that may have a material bearing on a patient that's just come into the emergency room? All of a sudden, the uh, capabilities and the approaches to data confidentiality don't work so well as we practice them in, uh, protecting the integrity and availability of human life. And so having that background, um, uh, I think predisposed me more towards healthcare, more towards the critical infrastructure side of protection and my, uh, you know, you, you can't see it, but behind me in my, uh, den recording studio here, as we've all been forced to, to stand <laughs> up a recording studio in our homes now. Um, I've got a big DEF CON flag. DEF CON is the world's biggest hacking conference. It typically draws mm. between twenty-five and 30,000 uh, people, uh, security pr- practitioners out to Las Vegas. Um, and I've been working with that conference for about a decade now. Uh, so that's all um, mm. what we might call ethical hacking or uh, good faith security research. Uh, and these are the people who are going to spend all weekend um, trying to reverse engineer some device so that they can find a flaw before an adversary does, report it to the company so that it can get fixed before it causes some harm. These are the, the protectors, they're the puzzlers who are curious and that curiosity drives them to solve problems and security is a big problem. It's the mm-hmm. people who want to push the state of the industry forward, the, the people who have a little bit of pride or prestige on the line maybe. Um, it's Mm -hmm. some of the people who are driven by, uh, you know, getting paid. So they may have a day job and then at night, uh, they want to work on bug bounties so that they can find new bugs, report them and get them fixed, and then set aside a little something for their kids to go to college. Um, or it might be the people who are patriots who want to serve their country, who want to ensure that, uh, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, is not, uh, be fouled by foreign adversaries. So mm. there's many different things that might drive some of the uh, security researcher community, some of the hacker community to do things that are positive and proactive. And with I Am The Cavalry, we wanted to bring all of those together. Um, and we've done that for about the last seven years. So it was a perfect match then for going into CISA because a lot of the, the same things, same ground rules apply, a lot of the same principles and approaches apply. And so it was really just a good match of of continuing to do that good work, but from a, a government agency rather than just independent on our own as pure volunteers.
0: Yeah, no, there's just it's it's so good. Like I love how just even like this looking back at this past past year, year and a half especially, um, like the idea of security and saving lives going hand in hand, um, and just. Earlier, you said balancing saving lives with cybersecurity and protecting information. If, if there was ever a time for that, um, that would be <laughs> when there's a global pandemic, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's there all the time. We definitely need we need more proactive approaches instead of just always trying to be reactive. I mean, we need the reactive, obviously, but proactive is so important. So yes. let's talk about the COVID task force. Um, sounds a little different than what maybe people think CISA would normally do. So. You talk, you mentioned it briefly a little bit, but what is the COVID task force and what's your role in it?
1: Right, so the COVID task force uh, came about from um, during the uh, the global pandemic, um, as Operation Warp Speed, which many people have heard of, uh, mm-hmm. was rolling out and deploying. Uh, that had a, a kind of a whole of government, whole of society approach to supporting the 30 most critical organizations or the 30 largest organizations as a part of uh, their vaccine deployment. Um, within that, obviously, there's a, a CISA component to that because adversaries are trying to steal information, intellectual property. Uh, they're trying to get a heads up on what the U.S. is developing, how the rollout is going, uh, or trying to get some of the uh, the research and development output without putting in the investment Um, There are also adversaries who want to do harm to America and our allies. So disrupting uh, the vaccine supply, for instance, uh, could be one objective. So Mm. CISA plays a large role. And one of the things we found early on is that while the 30 biggest companies are certainly the tip of the spear for the vaccine effort, there's a number of other companies and other organizations that also have a, a huge role to play. So 30 companies, but they have thousands within their supply chain and their distributed supply chains if you go in levels deep. Um, so we looked at a bunch of those organizations. I think we did some analysis uh, over, uh, started out I think at 300 that were nominated from HHS, from, from our, some of our private sector partners, some of the operation warp speed entities. And then we did a, a ranking of what their criticality was to the vaccine effort and to the healthcare effort overall. So, you know, um, are some of these organizations producing something that no one else in the world is, that's a critical supply and that will spoil after a week if you don't use it. So criteria like that really helped inform how we took a broader approach to assuring healthcare delivery during the pandemic. Um, Something like a task force uh, is a little bit new. It's a new concept to an organization like CISA. Um, We had stood up one for uh, elections in 2020. Uh, So this was a a second foray into that. We learned a lot about how CISA can effectively do its job by looking at a small slice of the critical infrastructure sector, the national critical functions, um, in order to learn a lot of lessons, in order to develop new pathways for... Uh, securing the nation and securing private sector companies as well as the government, um, and how would we potentially build uh, a a strong, robust, sustainable CISA for the long haul? And so we're working now to integrate those pieces throughout uh, the rest of CISA and integrate some of those lessons learned. Um, in in doing that, my role was kind of a in some ways I was a utility player. So because I had Uh, some broad healthcare expertise, I was able to go and help different parts of the task force. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I really focused most of my time within the task force on a couple of things. The first is healthcare delivery organizations. This is the 5,500 to 6,500 hospitals uh, that we have across the United States because I have experience working in hospital. uh, I know a lot of people who are at hospitals. I've got the connections, the background, the experience uh, to be able to um, empathize, to understand what they're going through, and to be able to offer some targeted recommendations. And secondly, I worked quite a bit on ransomware, which uh, when I came into the agency in November, uh, ransomware, particularly ransomware against hospitals, was uh, just skyrocketing. And throughout 2020, what we saw is that ransomware was hitting hospitals, taking them offline. And when you Uh, look at the benefits from connected medical devices, from electronic health records, Um, when those systems are no longer available, then it means those benefits are no longer available. So there's Mm -hmm. robust literature showing that medical devices and electronic health records save lives. And if those are offline, it means that by default we're costing lives. There are elective risks to to life and limb. Uh, So being able to uh, start addressing that and in many ways, laying the groundwork for the current ransomware work that says is doing today. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow! So that sounds like a major, major undertaking. Um, so, was there anything that went into the decision process when you got the call um, back in the beginning to take on the uh, one-year contract? Uh, what, what, what went into that decision process for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it was an easy choice. Come help mm-hmm. serve the nation. Uh, come have a a large pedestal from which to um, uh, to affect the change that we want to see in cybersecurity right. across the nation around the world. Uh, in some ways, it was difficult. I mean, it was a a pandemic. It was uh, it meant leaving my my cushy private sector um, higher paying role behind and going in to serve the government for a year, but. What I found in doing the calculations uh, were were multifold. Number one, this is a pivotal time for cybersecurity in mm-hmm. the nation's history and around the globe. Um, it's a time when we need all the smart, passionate people that we can get to come in and uh, and do something that has um, uh, that's incredibly meaningful, and for me, this type of role spoke to me as providing that purpose, that meaning that something bigger than myself. Um, secondly, you know, the, the pay hit wasn't quite as bad as I feared it might be. Um, while, you know, there's lots of talk of, uh, the private sector pays a lot more than government really, you know, number one, I didn't necessarily find that to be the case. Number two, um, once you get beyond uh, a certain amount of, of income every year, um, Mm -hmm something else really can step in and and serve the purpose of making you feel fulfilled. So no matter how much money you make, if the, if the work you're doing is not rewarding, you're probably not long for that job or you're going to hate it. I can honestly say that I wake up every morning and I know that I'm going to make a difference in the world. And that's a really powerful thing. So that drew me in. Um, part of it was, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult doing something different, going into an environment where, um, you know, you don't speak the lingo, uh, where you're unfamiliar with some of the, the organizational structure structures and some of the constructs that exist within government. Uh, but those are all really overcomable things. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and it's, uh, it's kind of like going back to school and learning all over again, you know, for, for some of those who like to learn through doing, um, it makes it a, a fun experiment to get in, learn, see what you can do, see how quickly you can come up to speed. Um, and then to see what you can bring from uh, your different vantage point, from your diverse perspective, bring that in and then add it to the the set of capabilities that an organization like Sciza has to bring to bear on any problem. Um, there's lots of places where I found that you know something that I took for granted in the private sector uh, was uh, an additional key that unlocked something valuable within Sciza. And so it was incredible to be able to bring that in. And just by virtue of me being around or making a certain connection or, or seeing something through a different framing, it gave SZA an additional capability, additional tool, something else that they could look at and experiment with and try out that, um, that really satisfies, uh, A, it's personally satisfying B, uh, it might be something that helps the nation, helps the world address emerging uh, and urgent cybersecurity threats. So incredibly powerful, incredibly rewarding.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a the quote. The great quote there is, uh, "We need all the smart, passionate, passionate people we can get." Uh, if that's yeah. not a call for cybersecurity and government, I don't know what is. So that that's really great. Um, so yeah, so definitely an eventful year. Um not only for you on COVID task force, but you know, for CIS as an agency, cause like you've mentioned, cybersecurity continues to be um, just impact left and right. Um, there's every day a new, another news story, right? So, mm-hmm. and then it was like interesting cause this year, this pandemic, you hinted this before with your call, decision to answer this call because it was a pandemic that hit everybody as a nation, you know, the entire world. And so it was felt mm-hmm. around the world. Um, can you just tell us any any of your favorite or most interesting memories that you might've had from this past year that we've all had to walk through in different ways?
1: Oh boy. Um, (laughs) I mean, there's, there's several great memories. There's several positive experiences as well as many not so positive experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll mention a couple of them, but there are many. Um, Some of them, uh, it's not yet time to tell. Some of them, uh, it is time to tell. Uh, one of them that's that's fairly recent is, uh, and this is um, a somewhat common thing that happens, but this one stands out in my mind because it was a hospital where we, uh, CISA had one of our partners, private sector partners, who came to us and said, hey, you know, under the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, we want to let you know that we have detected um, something bad happening out on the internet. Uh, that affects an organization in the nation, part of our critical infrastructure. We want you to know about it so you can hopefully take action before something bad happens. Uh, and in this particular case, it was a, a hospital um, that was uh, had the precursors of ransomware. So it's all the makings of a potential health catastrophe for the region served by that hospital. Which, if memory serves, this was a critical care access hospital. So. It may be part of a healthcare desert where they may be the only healthcare facility for an hour drive around. Um, and we, we knew that they had the precursors of ransomware. They were probably gonna get hit within the next week and be out. Fortunately, we were able to get in touch with that organization, track them down, find their technology person, uh, and help them address the ransomware issue before it happened so they could avoid being shut down, so that they could continue seeing patients, so that they didn't have to divert uh, precious financial and clinical resources away from um, patient care and into some type of an emergency response situation. So you know, situations like that, scenarios like that, um, they are amazing to hear. Uh, and again, that's not the only time that that's happened through my six months here at CISA so far. Um, but it stands out for me because that one was a hospital and it was fairly recent. Um, the other one, I'll say we, uh, during getting all of the um, COVID vaccines out to the states, to hospitals around, um, we realized that one requirement for these vaccines was cold storage. And at the time it was ultra cold storage. So, you know, below minus 80 degrees centigrade um, well, that means you have to have ultra cold storage tools and technology. Many of those for efficiency and cost reasons are now internet accessible, internet driven, internet connected. So we put out, I think it took us four days from learning that to putting out the, um, the paperwork and getting it printed and stuck to each pallet that went out. I think it was four days to get that through uh, the SISA apparatus. Um, designing the information, getting it cleared through legal, getting it cleared through public relations, and getting it over to the team at Operation Warp Speed who was shipping those. And so we had a one-page document, really easy, high-level language for how to protect cold storage systems from cyber and physical attacks or threats and risks so that we could maintain that cold storage within those facilities and preserve the vaccine for longer.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much for the work you've done. You know, as someone who uh, had to drive an hour and a half to the nearest hospital when we were on vacation, uh, that first story definitely speaks to my uh, parent heart uh, about getting critical care for one of my kids in the middle of the night when there's nothing closer. So the reality that, you know, ransomware could impact that is is scary things to think about, so. Well, thank you for joining us today at ClearCast. For more security clearance news and defense information, please visit us at news.clearancejobs.com.